What's up, Stitches? Welcome to episode 25, the last episode of So What Season 1. Can you believe it? I can't, to be honest. Time really flies. For real, it's so crazy. Thank you so much for joining me on this journey, and I hope you enjoyed this last episode before So What comes back in 2021. I'm really excited about it. Today's episode is a conversation with Dr. Edward Town, an art historian and curator who is the head of collections information and access and assistant curator for early modern art at the Yale Center for British Art in New Haven, Connecticut. What a dream, honestly. Ed is out here living my dream. Ed completed an AHRC-funded PhD between the University of Sussex and the National Trust All About Knoll, the fabulous country house in Kent. Ed and I became friends last year when Ed emailed me about some pieces of Quaker needlework he was going to include in an upcoming book. Which, like, being emailed about Quaker needlework? (laughs) My literal dream. The objects are incredible and they are in the book! The Quaker needlework made it in and I love to see it! So, okay, about the actual book. It's called Marking Time, Objects, People, and Their Lives, 1500 to 1800, and it's coming out right about now, like right now. It's available for pre-order as of the 27th of October, so two days ago. So yes, it is happening, and I'm putting the link across all the So What social media pages. In this episode, Ed and I are having a conversation rather than an interview. We're talking about how my work, especially my PhD work, intersects with Marking Time. Ed co-edited the book with Angela McShane of Warwick University and previously of the Victorian Albert and Welcome Collection. So, the book. Friends, I have read an advanced copy of the book, and it is an absolute treat. And I am not saying that because I vaguely consulted on a tiny part of it. For real, it is full of a mix of really informative, fascinating essays and so many objects. Oh my god, you guys, I, I screamed. Here's the official book blurb from Yale University Press. Quote, the period from 1500 to 1800 in England was one of extraordinary social transformations, many having to do with the way time itself was understood, measured, and recorded. Through a focused exploration of an extensive private collection of fine and decorative artworks, this beautifully designed volume explores that theme and the variety of ways that individual notions of time and mortality shifted. The feature uniting these more than 450 varied objects is that each one bears a specific date, which marks a significant moment, for reasons personal or professional, religious or secular, private or public. From paintings to porringers, teapots to tape measures, the objects and the stories they tell offer a vivid sense of the lived experience of time while providing a sweeping survey of the material world of early modern Britain." The private collection mentioned in the blurb is that of John H. Bryan, the son of a Mississippi meat wholesaler who collected a wide variety of objects from early modern Britain and whose collection still resides at his home at Crabtree Farb in Illinois. His goal was to acquire at least one example of every type of object from early modern Britain, mostly from England and Wales, and sometimes from Ireland and Scotland too. A lot of the objects in Brian's collection are dated, hence the book's focus on time and timekeeping and the passage of time in early modern Britain. There are so many objects in this book. The blurb said 450. It is a crazy amount of objects. It's almost an encyclopedic survey of Britain from the 16th to the early 19th century. My conversation with Ed revolves around four objects. We get into larger discussions about time and making and needlework and legacies by using these objects as our jumping off point. I'm going to describe the objects a bit more here so you have more context for the actual talk. 
The first one is actually one of the objects Ed first emailed me about. It's a sampler made by London Quaker Sarah Quare in 1700. Sarah was the daughter of Daniel Quare, a leading Quaker and one of 17th century London's most famous clockmakers. The second object truly blew my mind when I first saw it in the book. It really encapsulates the spirit of the collection and the book as a whole. It is a wildly amazing 17th century embroidered and rolled paperwork cabinet, which, when it was acquired in the 20th century, came with a full suite of objects, all of which are described in a series of handwritten notes. The object is associated with the Wesley family. John Wesley was the founder of Methodism. I get into that a bit in the conversation with Ed. The stuff in the box is crazy cool. There's lace, miniature fake flowers, a beaded chain, and a piece of cake from 1863. The third object we discuss is not needlework and is very, very different from what I discuss on this podcast usually. It's an ankle iron and key from Bristol in 1733. It's a hugely important and poignant reminder of slavery in 18th century Britain. This was placed on a black individual, either from Africa or of African heritage, who was brought into Britain to be enslaved. The name inscribed on the ankle iron is Deverell, and his address, Corn Street, Bristol. Deverell was surely the owner of the ankle iron, and a similar shackle is at the National Maritime Museum and carries the name Samuel Bazanque of Leighton, Essex, and the date 1746. This object is a really important reminder of Britain's involvement in slavery and provides a really jarring contrast to the needleworked objects discussed in this episode and throughout the season. In that part of the episode, I will explain a lot as to why this object is included in a conversation about needlework. The fourth and last item we discuss is another needlework piece, one that is really unusual. It's a friendship book with a bunch of names and dates in it, 1689, 1766, 1797, and 1810, and names including Anne Warren, Mary Smith, Catherine Willoughby, and Simon Scroop. The covers of the friendship book are panels from, I think, a 17th century casket, which is so cool. The book is full of different names and inscriptions from a variety of places, passed down from generation to generation and possibly from friend to friend. There are some really good inscriptions in it as well, which Ed mentions in the episode. Okay, that's enough about the objects. Let's get into the conversation. As always, images of what we discuss are on the So What social media pages for you to check out. Also, there is a link to pre-order marking time on all of the So What social media pages so you can get your hands on it yourself. Without further ado, here's the conversation. Let's start with the Sarah Quare sampler. So that sampler is kind of what brought us together and made us friends because the passage of time is so odd that I can't even remember when this was, but I think it was last year you emailed me after messaging me on Instagram, maybe you were like, Hey, heard you like Quaker needlework thoughts on this. And one of those things was the Sarah Quare sampler, which was very exciting to me because I had only recently gotten in to really looking at 17th century English band samplers and kind of identifying and getting very familiar with the Quaker needlework motifs. And this one has a lot of them. So that was the auspicious start to a beautiful, wonderful cross-continental friendship. Love that for us. Sarah Quare Sampler is really relevant for my own work. And the question that I keep asking with my PhD, which is Quakers are always considered or thought of to be really plain in their clothing and in their speech and in their lifestyles. And yet why I'm doing this PhD and the objects that I 
and musing for my PhD begged the question, what was going on with Quaker women's art? Because Quaker women's art before 1800 was so decorative, involving the finest materials, the brightest colors, the most stuff. It was so decorative and unplain that that is the entire essence of my PhD project. How did Sarah Quare and all of these other girls who were being taught to stitch, how did what they were being taught match the rest of the Quaker mindset and set of ideals? So in short, very grateful you brought this object to my attention. Super grateful it's in your catalog. And now I have questions to ask you. What does this object have to do with time? Well, like every object um, in the book, and this book uh, comprises uh, a series of essays and then a catalog section containing 400 plus dated objects. What I mean by dated objects is an object that is inscribed or carries a date upon it. And this is one of a series of um, samplers from the Bryan collection at Crabtree Farm, uh, from which all of the objects in this book are, um, are derived. And it's one of the earliest samplers um, in this series. And um, this is your area of expertise and not mine, but my understanding as to um, the date that's placed on these samplers is that it marks the moment in time when the sampler is deemed complete. So mm -hmm. this long band of riotous decoration, which you've just described, the date actually comes more or less at the bottom right. So it's this sort of terminating point um, in, the, in the object's creation and um, marks the moment in which these uh, skills and needlework had been attained, which seemed to have been so important um, for the educational development of these young women. When I think about samplers, I don't usually think about time, but what our conversations, our past conversations have made me realize is samplers are testaments to how much time a girl in past centuries spent learning how to stitch, how integral that skill was, and how the sampler is a full ledger of not only the skills she learned, but also the entire passage of time. The fact that she likely started with an alphabet, or in this case, yes, she did start with an alphabet in the top left corner and then finished with her, that date. And she said, you know, that was her putting her, that end point, that period on her work being like, I did it. It's 1700, my work is done. And it does serve as almost like a written document of how the time passed for her, how she learned how to stitch and how much time that took. And I also think about the passing of time and the marking of time with motifs, which I mentioned briefly because this has a lot of Quaker motifs on it, uh, which I will hopefully get into either in a future episode or in my PhD eventually. Uh, but things like these blue pinwheels um, I think about a lot, and for those of you listening, you can go see the blue pinwheels on the sampler yourself when you go look at all the social media stuff. But these blue pinwheels appear again and again in Quaker samplers, and I'm not sure the source of them or anything, but it's really easy to be able to pinpoint in terms of time when this was made based on a simple motif like that. I could see that sampler and be like, ah, that reminds me of other samplers from the 1670s to the 1720s. What does that say about Sarah and where she lived and who she was surrounded by and who taught her and when she lived and her relationship with time? 
And so do you think John Bryant collected this for that reason? Or do you think there was another reason why he got Sarah Quare's sampler in particular? Such a good question. I mean, initially, uh, John Bryan began collecting uh, British decorative arts of all sorts, principally brown furniture. Mm-hmm. And only relatively late in his life um, that a curator from the Victorian Albert Museum um, asked what was a fairly innocuous question, why are so many objects in your collection dated? And he'd never really had that question put to him at any point. Um, But from that point onwards, he began to collect objects um, that carried dates in an absolutely voracious manner. And that's many of which are um, included in this book. Now this object was uh, bought some decades um, prior to that conversation and prior to that sort of uh, focus in in his collecting. And I think it was bought as a particularly uh, strong um, example. This Brian always liked early examples of things. I think for precisely the reason that you're just describing, because a you know a, a date is incredibly helpful um, to someone to a design historian or someone who's trying to um, understand. Uh, the arc of change over time, you know, the development of motifs. And um, it's it's really, you know, it's been wonderful to learn more about your research and to see how an object like this can help sort of illuminate a picture, um, a really sort of forgotten history of um, of this part of London and, um, and these these people's lives, which is sort of often flattened and forgotten in in broader and larger um, narratives of of British history, be that sort of conventional history or focused histories on the decorative arts. Um, So it's it's incredibly satisfying um, to know now, thanks to your research and and your um, expertise, um, that it's likely that, you know, this was produced in one of the, the Quaker schools. I mean, I love that. I mean, you're speaking my language completely because one of the reasons I do study art history and have always been interested in the decorative arts and material culture and women's art is because I do think that when I was learning history and art history in school and in undergrad, I did feel like a lot of those histories were flattened and there was a lot of focus on when da Vinci painted whatever, when Picasso painted whatever, and not a lot of focus on the micro histories of people of people we forget about and the richness of their lives. And I think that reminds me a lot of something that we've talked about in the past, which is that theme of time and control, which you we have talked about before. But what I like is that John Bryan, without realizing it, collected a lot of dated objects. And it's that same, he had that same fascination with that sort of desire to have a date and to pin somebody in time and space the same way that I have. It gives me a sense of control because because of those dates, because of those names, I am able to more likely than not identify somebody. You know, I can search in Ancestry.com or find my past or whatever. Sarah Quare, 1690, presumably, you know, she was about 10 when she made it because it's 1700. And like to be able to identify somebody based almost exclusively on that date that they mark down and their point in history is really meaningful. And I think there's 
a lot going on there because it gives me the the researcher, the historian, a sense of control because I am able to actually find an answer. And I think it probably gave Sarah Quare a sense of control as well, that she was able to say, and this theme is going to come up again and again in our conversation, I think. She was able to say, you know, this is my name and this was the year and I was here. One of the nice things, well, one of the sort of quirks, I think, of the, the queer um, sampler is is the, the sort of the maxim that's inscribed across it or embroidered across it that says, keep thy tongue on a bridle, that it talk not idle. And one can imagine that sort of refrain being um, you know, written on the blackboard, as it were, in the schools. Mm-hmm you know said often around the queer household and what's you know queer's interesting for all sorts of reasons not least the fact that her father was one of the most important um clockmakers and instrument makers of the day and made clocks and timekeeping instruments um for charles ii and other members of the restoration court and one of the sort of interesting things that we observed in the process of putting together this book and doing the research on this and the 400 other objects in the book is that there seems to have been a close relationship between troll over timekeeping, um, which begins really in the late 1650s. And that history of improved timekeeping seems to run concurrently with Britain's um, increased dominion over um, its its growing colonial colonial empire, um, so those two histories are interesting to observe side by side. And uh, alongside that is this growth in this phenomenon of um, of marking that dating objects was a particular phenomenon of the early modern period, and this is born out of people's new relationship with time and time being present more frequently in the home, um, being more uh, increasingly dependable and also um, increasingly an instrument of control, as you describe. Briefly, as we move on to the next object, I think a good transition between this object and the next one that I think about a lot in my own work, not just for the PhD, but also looking at women's needlework all the time is the idea of lineages of women, of lineages of makers and lineages in general. The idea that this object has survived for 320 years in amazing condition, it's still very vibrant. And the fact that this had to have gone through Sarah Quare's family and then maybe like it had to have gone through so many different hands and the fact that it survives today. But the idea of the passing of time over many generations. How do you fit yourself in a lineage of people? I think I think this object brings up a lot of those issues because it it really asks a lot of questions about who owned this, how wh- what did they think about this object? Um what were their thoughts on on the verse and the this girl and the motifs like what how did the passage of time with this object work for them? That is something that is an issue I think about a lot with my own work. But the next object we're going to talk about, which is the Wesley family cabinet, makes that so clear to me because it is like a time capsule because it's many generations 
having this object and putting their own work into that same box. And it's the physical encapsulation of, uh, of lineages and the passage of time over the course of generations. So I'm just like, the Wesley family cabinet did not know it existed before reading through your book, lost my mind, continue to lose my mind every time I think about it. I, I just can't, it's such a rich object in and of itself, but there's also so much in it. So could you tell me the kinds of objects that are within the cabinet itself? Absolutely. So um, this object isn't, strictly speaking, isn't dated. So there are, there are two uh, late 17th century embroidered cabinets, both presumably um, made by young women that were included in the book one of which uh, is dated with seed pearls at the top, 1660. Now this object isn't dated, but its contents are. And it's a remarkable collection of, uh, of objects uh, that really sort of give us a, a, a different view on, uh, just a different way in to understanding um, the way in which families are built up um, sort of their own histories and repositories of, of knowledge through objects. And um, I think most importantly, um, the generations of women who um, made some of the objects uh, within the cabinet, uh, cared for them, wrote about them, uh, described them in a series of notes um, that, are, that are tucked into all of the um, drawers and secret compartments. Uh, throughout this cabinet. Um, but to give you a sense of what's inside, um, I should first say, we're going to describe it as the Wesley uh, cabinet. And that's a shorthand um, to talk about the Wesley family, the famous uh, nonconformists and the founders of, of the Methodist Church. And that is because there are a number of objects associated um, with uh, John Wesley and his family. Now, this doesn't necessarily mean that the contents uh, belonged or that the cabinet itself belonged to the Wesleys. Um, rather, it seems that it belonged to a family who were presumably Methodist, but had um, a deep admiration for the Wesley family and sought to um, sort of collect these objects as if relics of the true cross. Um, but it's quite a an assemblage of, of different types of things. Um, everything uh, from a succession of um, different types of lace work, um, which is attributed um, in these small notes um, to Sarah Wesley, that is the, um, the daughter of Charles and niece of John Wesley, founders of Met Methodism. Um, and we have sort of English uh, lace work, uh, looks, uh, you know, to, to be of the early to mid and then late 17th century, and then also um, professional French lace work as well. And this has been backed onto um, pink paper uh, to uh, ensure its preservation. Uh, we also have um, little, uh, a series of small uh, medals uh, a, a really remarkable object um, that's made of beads um, that is described as a bead chain uh, with a note that describes how it was intended to be hung 
run around an old-fashioned circular brazier for airing linen, um, just the type of object that isn't um, that doesn't tend to survive or is is very rarely uh, described, and has the most wonderful inscription um, on it that reads, "My ring is round and hath no end, so is my love unto my friend." And then the name Mary Blackmore and the date. 1673. So that's the earliest dated object um, in this um, in this cabinet. And then the there's a on the later, presumably 19th century note, is the record that it was lent by a Mrs. A. Harper from Charlton Adam. So um, that's in sort of southwest of England. And it seems therefore that this um, this cabinet became almost something like a museum of objects. It became this repository of predominantly women's history um, that, that stored these objects that didn't necessarily interrelate. Broadly speaking, they were um, associated with the Wesley family, but this, um, this bead chain uh, just seems to have been treasured um, as, uh, as, as a sort of, yeah, as a beautiful uh, possession. Um, we've also got little, uh, uh, baskets made of paper with little flowers within them, and then um, spun glass ornaments uh, that come with a note that say that they were worn at the Thanksgiving service at St Paul's Cathedral on the occasion of the restoration of reason um, of King George III. So, um, yeah, presumably worn at that service um, to um, celebrate uh, the return of George III from one of his uh, bouts of um, ill health. And, and with that is a, a small um, engraved print of George III, uh, which still uh, bear, bears some of the sequins that were um, used to decorate it. And presumably those portraits um, were pinned uh, to people on the hearts of those people um, who attended that service. And I suppose so. It's the cabinet has is this wonderful repository of things that um, I think might might fall into the category of ephemera, um, but were the things that were cherished, uh, the keepsakes, the things that were important to people. I suppose for our purposes and something that we've spoken about a little in the past, and maybe the thing that I am most interested in um, as an inscription. Is not does not pertain to the contents, but to the construction of this remarkable object, and this is something that was never meant to be seen, but is the most valuable clue um, to uber geeks like you and I who puzzle over the way in which uh, cabinets like this were made and uh, what seems to be in a complex series of uh, transactions and a sort of complex way of way of making and this inscription reads and it's I think it's, a, it's in the sort of soffit of the lid of the cabinet and it reads and it's in a, a sort of scroll of a 17th century notary script just says for a glass and cushions so and I took that to mean that this was well I took this as a, as a note by the craftsperson who created the kit, basically, um, that was going to be assembled um, and carry 
these various panels of embroidery that were going to be made um, by the young woman um, and her family who'd purchased this kit. One of the things that I think about a lot, and I think a lot of people also interested in these boxes must think about a lot, is oh, what was that interaction between various groups of people who were working on these things? Because there were the drafts people who drew the um, underdrawings for these uh, embroidered panels. Did they sell them ready-made? Were you able to go to one of these artisans and say, hey, I'd like a panel of the female personifications of the senses, but can you also give me a Rebecca at the well for the top, right? And I do wonder the level of bespokeness involved. Um, what, how much of it was kit-based and how much of it was, was customized? I think that cabinets and caskets in this way between those marks and this, this script of saying for the glass and the cushions allows us to get the physical hand of the makers, all of the people involved, that it wasn't just, you know, wealthy girls at the end of their needlework education. It was also these bookbinders and these drafts people and that there must have been these thriving businesses likely in London, perhaps in a few other city centers around the country of people uh, who were, who in addition to other jobs like binding books and doing other sort of drafts work we're making uh, a living off of the entire this gigantic booming industry of girls learning to stitch i'm also obsessed with that what what we're calling the wesley family cabinet because like you were saying it is a museum of an entire family's history it does become a time capsule and the idea that these things that we consider bits of ephemera were so precious that we get a glimpse into these lives that we wouldn't get elsewhere. We don't, you know, you're, it's not every day you're running across a piece of wedding cake from 1863 or, you know, a flower from the reef put on Albert's grave or whatever. It's those things that make life rich. Your earlier point about time and control leads really well to the next object, I think. An object that is not needlework, an object that is not related really to any of the other things we've talked about, but an object that's really uncomfortable and extremely important to discuss, the Bristol ankle iron. It's bad to generalise, but we might think typically of needlework as and um, sewn, stitched, embroidered objects as, as soft items. Mm -hmm. This is a hard item. And yeah. I suppose one of the unique things about this publication is it sets... Uh, troubling and difficult objects such as this, um, alongside um, needlework, plates, um, candlesticks, many objects from uh, the domestic realm that can seem soft, at moments almost sentimental. Mm -hmm. uh, and if they were, if those was, if we only thought about those soft objects, I think we get a very distorted picture of the early modern period. And this ankle iron, um, which is inscribed across it, um, Deverell, that's the name, then Corn Street, Bristol, the address, and then finally the date, 1733. So this is the only object really 
of its type in this book. Um, so whereas there are many examples of some samplers, mm -hmm. this is the only Ancline. And um, this was not, the, the Bryan collection is not something which should be described really as a, a slavery collection per se, in the way that there are um, such collections assembled. But such was um, sort of uh, John Bryan's, such was the sort of the broadness of his outlook uh, that he understood that this was an important uh, piece of history that was every bit as deserving to enter the collection as um, remarkable pieces of, um, of textiles, for example. And um, it is an object that fulfilled a, a callous and violent um, purpose. Um, it's, as you said, it is, so this is a steel ankle iron, um, which uh, would have operated uh, much like some kind of modern day electronic tag um, and has a key um, uh, by which the object was locked around a person's ankle. And I think once on the body would have been impossible to divest um, from, from, from that limb. And so it fulfills its uh, sort of, its callous function um, by ensuring that the person uh, forced to wear it uh, could, even if they may have fled the household of Corn Street, Bristol, uh, could never uh, truly es escape their status. Um, and this is an ambiguous status as someone who would have um, almost certainly been of African heritage um, and was kept within the household of uh, the Deverell family in the early 18th century as um, an enslaved servant. You know, I think for centuries, Britain has sought to uh, distance itself uh, from the legacies of slavery um, by um, stressing its role within um, emancipation, uh, but also seeking to physically, um, uh, geographically distance itself um, from slavery by uh, containing that issue to something that happened in Britain's colonies. Whereas there is another aspect of the history of slavery um, that played out within the shoreline of Britain. And that is an uncomfortable history and one that I think this object uh, brings into, into sharp focus. Um, so yeah, it's taking us to a, a very different um, aspect of, of Britain's history and far from the classrooms of, um, the Quaker classrooms of Hackney, um, but, and also takes us into a different realm in terms of thinking about time as well. And this is the subject of a really wonderful essay within the book um, by a graduate student at Yale, uh, Justin Brown, who really um, explores uh, the ideas around uh, commodity exchange, uh, but also this notion of stolen time. Now, you and I have spoken in the past about the fact that many of the samplers and much of the needlework that you look at 
was made during the luxury of time, but what afforded those young women that luxury. And um, in, in many cases, it was uh, the, the labor that was undertaken um, without compensation, many thousands of miles away in Britain's colonies. Um, and that's a sort of a history that is, um, is, is not as well uh, represented in, in, in the material culture of the period, if that makes sense. So, and it's actually quite rare to find uh, one of an instrument such as this um, inscribed with a date. Now, this, the, the persons whose name is inscribed across the band of this um, iron is uh, presumably uh, John Deverell, and um, he was a surgeon of Bristol and researching uh, sort of his uh, career um, takes us to, to various sort of uh, really pretty dark moments in, in the chapters of this chapter of British history. To talk about this object is important not only to give it the opportunity to be looked at and analyzed and spoken about to hear you talk about this object after having researched it, it's also important to talk about this object in the larger scheme of 18th century material culture and 17th century material culture and um, objects that were made in the country, in, in England, in this country that was becoming increasingly global, which brought a lot of good things, but also a lot of really, really bad things. Um, so that's just to say these objects, this ankle iron is really important for the discussion of needlework for the listeners who I very much, much respect and understand when they're like, this isn't needlework, why are you talking about it? It is not needlework. It's very much a part of that story. And it's really important that we talk about it. It helps us, I think, uh, what gives us pause for thought about how we read these objects. And let's just take the Sarah Quare um, sampler as a example. Mm -hmm. now, it says explicitly, keep on thy tongue a bridle. And we, I think, would understandably and easily just brush over that. We know what she means, but actually, when you set this sampler in the context of the ankle line, you start to think, well, what are these? What is the instrument that she's describing there? What is the bridle? And the bridle's a horrible object. It was it's an ironwork contraption that's placed over the head and then has a, a part that fits into the mouth in order to hold the tongue in place. So it's an incredibly violent object that she's describing and one that would have been um, seen in, in and around London and across the country uh, during the period. And it was also um, an object that was uh, deployed regularly on enslaved people in the colonies. It's important to talk about these things. That bridal example is a really good connection between those objects. But generally, context is really important when talking about needlework and textiles and material culture generally. Um, to study the richness of one's life, I think you have to study the good, beautiful things and the bad things. I am excited for people to read the book for many reasons, but also so more people will know about objects like this and the object that is very similar in the Maritime Museum. And not to 
mitigate or minimize the terribleness of this object and what it represents in terms of the enslavement of people. But we are going to move on to the last object because like it's a podcast that is about needlework. So we do need to like end with a needlework object and it's one of my favorites. So we're going from the the darkest and most brutal of human behaviors, the idea of enslaving another person to one of the most wholesome human behaviors, which is being friends with people. And you know, the, uh, we're, we're contrasting in a big way, but we're moving on to this friendship book, which I have never seen anything like it. This friendship book that people have signed and written in for several hundreds of years in this, what looks to be seven, part of a 17th century cabinet it turned into a book. So could you, Tell me a bit more about this object and the descriptions in the book. What you have um, through the series of inscriptions um, that are helpfully dated. Uh, Love it. From between 1689 uh, through to 1810, it's just a series of snapshots, just sort of um, captured conversations, notes, and scrolls. I think not really set down um, particularly with mind towards posterity, but um, cumulatively uh, just sort of record a history of a um, a place, I suppose, and um, which we, we know from the names of the people who wrote, um, who inscribed the book with the inscriptions um, that we are looking at possibly a, um, a sort of series of Catholic families, uh, the Chumley and Willoughby family uh, in the north of England. As you say, it's the, the book is, the covers of the book are, are decorated with embroidered um, scenes uh, from the late 17th century, which as you say, may, may well have come from a cabinet. Um, and then inside, um, are these series of uh, short notes. I think my favorite of which are the ones um, written by um, a number of girls in 1689. Um, And my favorite being that that reads, in your absence, this freedom we take, but if you are here, our heads would break. And that's endorsed by Kathleen uh, Willoughby, Willoughby. And, um, and then someone else has come in and said, the owner of these very witty conceits is an ass. I'm vow a mightily good joke. Ha, ah, ha, ha, ha. So, <laughs> I love it. And then just as, as part of this, around this time, there's a, you know, there's this the sentimental note, Jane Cotton is a person of singular worth and goodness. And I must, um, and this I, I vow to be most furiously true. So, you know, just with these three little short notes, um, one begins to get a picture of, um, you know, uh, a series of young women uh, kicking their heels um, in boredom in a in a schoolroom or something like that, and doing what people have been doing for centuries upon end human nature is the same we not only have this desire to 
crack jokes, but more than that, there is that innate human desire, that need to be remembered and to say, this is who I am. This is where I am. And I I was here. Remember me, I think is, it's so powerful and it really is very moving. And I also think that it encapsulates another one of the central reasons why I study women's needlework, something that I think like the Wesley family cabinet makes very clear, like it's the importance and desire to be part of something bigger, to be remembered as part of a group and as part of a community and to fit yourself in a lineage of, of people and to say this, not only is this who I am, but this is who came before me and somebody's going to come after me too. I think that all the objects we've looked at and all of the other objects in the book speak to so many of the things that I think about, but I think that also people who aren't art historians or historians or researchers or curators or whatever, just like your normal person thinks about a lot. And I think it would actually bring great comfort to a lot of people because it shows that the human connections are there across time, across centuries. The, the book proves that beyond any shadow of a doubt that we've wanted to mark our place in time. Thank you for this opportunity. Thank you for letting me be a small teeny tiny part of the book. Thanks for letting me talk to you about it. I'm really excited about it. I'm really excited for everybody else to read it because I think it's brilliant. So much there. And I think for people who do research on objects, I think there's a lot of fodder for future research. And for people who are historians and art historians and are just interested in things, there's a lot to to think about and to research and to to get excited about. So thank you. It's been what like truly what a joy and what a treat. Thank you very much, Isabella. I feel really lucky that I got to talk to Ed about marking time, and I am really, really excited the book is coming out so soon. I truly cannot explain how much I love this book and how helpful it's been for my own PhD research. Also, speaking of PhD research, I'm so glad I got an opportunity to talk about my PhD stuff. I hope it wasn't too boring for all of you. I haven't really gotten into my work on the pod because I figured it would get boring hearing me talk about Quaker women's art over and over again. But I'm really glad that now, at the end of So What Season 1, you all can get to know a bit more about me and the big questions I'm thinking about in my PhD. Also, I cannot believe this is the end of season one of the pod. I've really enjoyed making So What for these past five months and have learned a lot. Thank you all very, very much for listening to So What, whether you've listened to only one episode or all of them or anywhere in between. I'm super, super grateful for all of the support and interest and enthusiasm. I'll go quiet-ish over the next few months as I prep for the next season, which will come out in early 2021 and which will feature episodes about things like, I don't know, the Glasgow Girls, Baltimore album quilts, and interviews with museum people, researchers, and makers galore. But I will, of course, be around in the meantime, so please get in touch on any of the So What social media accounts or via email at sowhatpodcast at gmail.com. If there's anything specific you want to hear about next season, let me know. In the meantime, I'll also be doing fun podcast things like making a website and maybe setting up a Patreon. So for the last time this season, I'll say thank you so much for listening. You are all the best. I'll be back in a few months with more delightful needlework content. And in the meantime, I will be on the So What Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram pages. So come say hi. See you all in 2021 when hopefully things are a bit less spooky and scary. Now go out and stitch some stories and go buy the Marking Time book and catch up on So What if you haven't already. Bye!